everybody this evening. I've uh, got a couple of announcements just to remind everyone of the um, uh, picnic on the 13th of October and signing up. All of that information will be out there. Thinking if you've got any ideas on games, in fact, I'm just going to throw something out there. Somebody can think about it. Um, since we're challenging Country Bible Church in terms of volleyball, and I know in the past we've had a croquet uh, set set up out there, and that might be something that the, some kids may want to do is set up a no food fights, no, no, shootout, shootout. <laughs> paint guns. We can, um, yeah, no food fights. They had a rather, what's become rather infamous food fight up at uh, the camp this summer that uh, <clears throat> some people with less, uh, more inclined towards asceticism took a little issue with. But, you know, you always got that problem. That's a perennial struggle in the church, grace versus legalism. Yeah, I'm sure you, at least on that, knowing the leadership of this, Endeavor. You guys are doing a great job, though. Okay, um, I think that's the only basic announcements. Uh, I'll give a little update on my dad. I appreciate everybody's prayer. I'll give a little update on that in just just a minute. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The reason we do this every time is part, partly a pedagogical reason. By constant reminder, it reinforces the truth of the importance of confession of sin uh, throughout our daily life. It reinforces that principle prior to any kind of Bible study. And in that sense, it a, a, serves a pedagogical purpose, but it's also a spiritual significant event because it is how we maintain our walk with the Lord. It doesn't uh, move us forward spiritually. It just restores us to a place where we can move forward spiritually and pursue spiritual maturity, which is God's plan for our life. So we need to uh, learn to get our will in line with his will. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us. It's your word that tells us about your care, your comfort for us, and the fact that there is nothing that we face in life that is outside of your omniscience or beyond your omnipotence. And you are able to take care of and deal with every situation, difficulty, problem that we face in life. And the issue for us is whether or not we're going to trust you, walk with you, and implement the plan that you have revealed in your word, or whether we're going to go off uh, on our own and try to problem solve apart from you. Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we might be challenged uh, again with your grace, especially when we look at the life of this this individual Saul of Tarsus and all of the sin that characterized his life prior to salvation as it demonstrates, as he says, that he is a trophy of grace. And grace doesn't just deal with pre-salvation sin but every single sin that we commit in life. And it is your grace that is the uh, overarching doctrine that, that envelops every one of the problem-solving devices, the spiritual skills that are revealed in Scripture. So we pray tonight as we study that we might realize this isn't just academic study looking at some historical event, but that this is 
uh, as much our story as his story and the story of every believer that comes face-to-face with the truth of the gospel of grace and salvation by Jesus Christ alone at the cross. And we pray that we might be uh, further... Uh, we might have a further understanding of our own salvation and spiritual life as a result of this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A lot of you have been uh, praying for my dad, and I truly appreciate that. This, as many of you know, because you have gone through similar circumstances in your own life, and some of you haven't hit this point yet, and you will. Some people, I think God graces out. And those who are in their life, parents, children, spouses, who just uh, the Lord takes home in a rather instantaneous manner, uh, don't go through some of these uh, long-term type situations where you're, you're really faced with a lot of uh, uh, difficult decisions. And they're difficult because a lot of times we don't always know what, the, uh, what, what a precise or best answer is and how we go through that uh, and it really is a problem-solving procedure because the problem that we're solving is has to do with each decision. And as I pointed out when I've taught through problem-solving devices, spiritual skills in the past, every decision we make in life is a problem. It's like when you're going through and when you're in the military and you go through various uh, combat drills uh, your, and uh, <clears throat> various field training exercises, these are presented as problems. It's you're presented with a, uh, a challenge, a decision that you have to make based upon the training that you have received prior to that, that event and that situation. And uh, it's, sometimes there's no right answer. There may be a number of wrong answers, but there's not one hit this one on the spot answer. And so Scripture gives us guidance, a framework of thinking for handling these things. And I'm kind of going through that right now with my dad. He, as many of you know, has had Alzheimer's. He was diagnosed 13 years ago. He was diagnosed uh, two years and 10 months ago with uh, lung cancer, uh, which they said would probably kill him within a year and a half. So their timing is not always all all that great um, because it's been almost three years now. And, And that... You know, that has to be taken into consideration when they, you know, doctors start giving you data and, and you, you're supposed to make decisions based on timing that they throw out there and you go, well, wait a minute. Um, I'm not sure you're, you're hitting, hitting high numbers here in your averages. But um, then this last year, a uh, brain tumor was identified on his, on his brain, but we didn't go through the process of biopsy and everything else. And now there's other things that are going on. The cancer has been very, very slow growing, but now it's beginning to speed up. And uh, 10 days ago, he broke his hip, fractured his hip, and then last week we des- they decided that the best course of action was to do a hip replacement. But he's too weak to go through the therapy and the rehab to rebuild his strength to get up and walk again. So uh, yesterday morning, I had a meeting with the doctors, and the doctors, and they had some facts wrong, but basically what they were saying is that they were wrestling with how much care to give it. And my directive had been just, you know, keep him comfortable all along. Don't do anything. Don't take any extraordinary measures because I've already had one great aunt die from Alzheimer's. She was 14 years as a vegetable. Um, I would rather have my father die from lung cancer, stroke, Lord knows anything, but go through another five or six years like that. And um, so anyhow, they wanted clarification, and it really was sort of a shock to me because I didn't think we were there yet because their bottom line was basically uh, he really, you know, any kind of care, dealing with any problem at this point is just going to uh, increase discomfort, increase pain, constant blood tests during the day, fluid on the lungs needing to be drained more and more frequently, things of this nature, or hospice care, uh, which would mean that their timing, I I know their record, uh, their timing is n- not even three months. But I was extremely unsettled yesterday by that, not so much because of the decision. And I think a lot of times when when we hear of people who are in a similar situation, 
it's not so much, you know, my dad was saved when he was very young. My dad was a deacon at Baraka Church. He was in charge of the tapes and publications uh, committee back when it was a function of the of the church and back when they produced that, that one of those lifelong technological masterpieces that we all know and love called a, uh, what they call those? A phonograph, a record, the basic doctrine records. wonder if any of you all remember that. Don't, don't say you'll. You'll be giving away your your age. But anyway, so I'm not at all concerned about what's going to happen if he dies. But for many of us, see, that's not really the issue. And people around us often mistake that as an issue. Lord knows I'm I'm ready for him to go to be uh, with the Lord because that's going to end all this suffering and all this difficulty. And I have no doubt whatsoever of what's going to happen. It's all, as many of you know who've gone through this, it's all those other decisions we have to make regarding legal property in this world and regarding uh, just what kind of care is right or wrong or this or that. And we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to increase their discomfort. Uh, We don't want to extend their life just for the sake of extending their life, especially when they aren't real sure who 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 they are looking at in the mirror. I know some of you relate to this. When I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I say, mirror, mirror on the wall, I am my father after all. And he looks in the mirror and he thinks he's me. I'm scared. The day, today I was up in his room and I was sitting by the table and, and a couple of uh, doctors and came in and they said, uh, we haven't met you before. I said, if you don't know who I am, you need to go back to, they were the psychiatrists, I said, you need to go back to your psychiatric care and have your head examined. And they did a double take and they said, you're absolutely right, we know who you are. (laughs) So anyhow, um, it's making those decisions. And as I came home yesterday and was thinking about wrestling with it through through the day and I talked with Army and Army is the uh, lady who has worked for my parents. We hired her. My mother had polio when I was a kid before I was born, actually, but growing up, she was always in a wheelchair. And from the uh, time I was born, I had two mothers. I had a black mother and a white mother because uh, my mother being in a wheelchair couldn't do any housework or anything, so we had to hire a maid uh, five days a week uh, for my entire life growing up. And um, uh, it's another story, but one of my great privileges was preaching her funeral about 12 years ago. But when she was getting older and ill and had to quit, uh, retire, uh, <clears throat> we my folks hired Army. So she that was in ninety or I think nineteen ninety, and uh, that was before my mother had her strokes and eventually, which culminated in her uh, death in two thousand two. So she has been there through thick and thin and truly performed above and beyond the call of duty, and she is just a absolute treasure and gift of grace because she's a believer. She's extremely dedicated and loyal to the family and uh, does a fabulous job. And she, you know, I just basically turn 98% of things over to her. To I mean, if she died tomorrow, I wouldn't know what pill to give my dad. I don't have a clue what goes on. She handles everything, and I just sort of sit in the background and, and watch. And so I think she was a little more distressed over the news yesterday than I was because she's with him all the time, and she didn't think he was. we were near to the point of having to make this decision. And so my prayer was, and I think this is a prayer that many of us should have, is that God would just you know, give us clarity in, in, in limiting the options. And I rely a lot on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says that we are to trust in the Lord always and lean not on our own understanding. It's great to get all the data from the doctors or from whatever the circumstance is and to do all the evaluation. But at some point, there is an X variable factor in there that we don't know. And only God knows what those variables are beyond the hard data that we have. And so I was just praying last night that, that God would really help make this clear because I didn't feel like we were near this decision. And uh, there were a couple of options that were on the table yesterday that uh, when I went down to the hospital this morning uh, were taken off the table pretty quickly. And it basically comes down to the fact that the only options now are, well, there's three options. The first is 24-7 care at home, but 
unless the Lord dumps another 2500 a month in my lap. Uh, that's not going to help at minimum. That's not going to happen. Uh, the other option is putting him in a nursing home, VA contract bed in a nursing home, or putting him in what I understand is a very nice hospice wing at the VA hospital, which is probably the option it looks like everything is taking us to. And, um, and so that's where that's headed. So <clears throat> he may return, you know, he may surprise us and get some strength back. This is a man who was in the first wave at Iwo Jima. He is still pretty physically tough. Uh, one old, one old attendant at down at the VA was laughing the first morning I went up there. He said, well, he only tried to, tried to, uh, punch me out three times last night. I'd come over there to try to move him, and he'd come off the bed with a, a roundhouse and and um, you know try to try to hit me, and I just barely missed it each time. He slowed down just a little bit, so uh, <clears throat> he's still pretty tough. So he could bounce back, but he just can't get any any physical traction going in terms of uh, putting any weight on the leg or going forward with that or anything. He's just too weak. So. It's sad for us when we watch somebody deteriorate, and it's a slow time, and we all ask those questions, why doesn't the Lord take so-and-so now? Why do they let them go through that suffering? That is such an underlying issue. People ask that about everything, and that's because we don't know that X variable. What opportunities I might have, Army might have, others might have to witness down there at, at, at the VA? What opportunities do we have that just the circumstances alone, me talking about it here, uh, going out on the Internet, may be an encouragement to someone else going through that. That's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We comfort one another with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. There are so many ways in which God uses events like this that we're not aware of. We, don't, we, we just get myopic and focus on why does God let this suffering happen and we don't know. That's the whole point in the book of Job is, is God asked all those questions of Job to point out to Job that, see, you can't comprehend any of this. If I were to answer your question, you wouldn't understand it. So quit asking why. Just trust me. And that's what we're supposed to do. So that's a little bit about what's going on. I've, I'm making some decisions to scale back on a couple of things, not so much related to what's going on here, but just ancillary uh, type of uh, uh, ministries, involvements I'm in. I'm not going to, I made the decision, I'm not going to back off of the November 10th involvement at the Center for Terrorism Law dealing with Islam and Christianity because th- after the events of the last two weeks, that is such a crucial thing. I don't care how much time I have to put into preparation. That is such a, the point at which we as a nation and as a culture and as Christians are being assaulted, that is of high priority. That has to be addressed. But uh, there are some other things that I haven't decided on yet that are kind of up in the air, and the Lord will make that clear as time goes by. But that's how we go through decision-making. Okay, let's go to Acts Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and this is really part 2 of uh, Paul's conversion, as I titled it last time, Psychotic Break, Psychological Delusion, or God's Gracious Forgiveness and Transformation. And that really sets up the, the interpretive conflict between human viewpoint on the one hand and divine viewpoint on the other. The world looks at this and says, oh, well, this is just like another, just, just, it's just some psychological break. He's overwhelmed by the guilt of persecuting these Christians, persecuting women and children. Uh, I have a problem with that. And the problem with that is, I'll just use one word, the Holocaust. You just didn't see that kind of thing happening to uh, the SS troops. Uh, Paul has a shorter uh, window of time here. You just don't see this kind of psychological event occurring for people who are so mired in the darkness of, of evil in their own soul that that guilt has that kind of reaction. I might have something like that with some people, but not the kind of complete 180-degree shift that occurs with the Apostle Paul. They may be overcome with, with guilt and have an emotional breakdown, nervous breakdown, meltdown, whatever you may call it, and become just a mass of quivering jello on a psych, psychotic ward floor, but they don't become a passionate 
most brilliant defender of the opposing view within uh, 72 hours. It just doesn't happen. That is the brilliance of what happens with Paul. So these human viewpoint explanations just really don't work in the face of the historical evidence. But see, what they do is they have this presupposition they bring to the evidence that, well, that can't be accurate evidence. And so we have to discount it because it's tainted. It's pro-Paul. It was probably written not by Luke, but by somebody two or three hundred years later. That is completely flies in the face of all historical evidence today. That's a 19th century view that uh, liberals tried to float because they didn't have enough uh, historical, archaeological confirmation in the mid-19th century to argue against uh, some of those views. So they got away with suggesting a, a late authorship of New Testament documents, and uh, people bought into that. But today, uh, that's not true. There's one book written by a liberal, an extreme liberal theologian. His name is John A.T. Robinson. He wrote a fa- famous book back in the early 60s called Honest to God, in which he set forth the death of God theology. If you remember how popular that was back in the 60s, God is dead. But John A.T. Robinson also wrote another book dealing with the origin of the New Testament in which he dealt with the historical archaeological evidence of the, uh, of the, of the, of the New Testament and when it was written, and he ended up trying to date all of the books in the New Testament a little bit earlier than even conservative theologians would. I don't buy into his dates, but it shows that if liberals are honest with the historical archaeological date, they cannot late date uh, anything uh, in the New Testament to the mid-2nd century or late-2nd century or late-3rd century that there was some period of... of, uh, oral transmission where everything got so garbled that uh, X became non-X, white became black, and up became down, which is basically the, the, the liberal view. Uh, this shows that, that uh, there is uh, documented historical archaeological evidence for numerous things in the book of Acts, so there's no reason to doubt its historicity or authenticity. And so we have this, this tremendous story here that uh, Paul's conversion told as a narrative by Luke as it happens in Acts chapter uh, in Acts chapter uh, 9 but then it's repeated from the mouth of Paul two other times in the in the book of Acts in the narrative when he is giving a defense of his particular position uh, once in Acts chapter 22 and again in Acts chapter 26 and so these all dovetail now some people try to make a case, we're looking at this already, make a case for certain discrepancies in these views, but they, they fit together. They're just the addition of details not mentioned in one account does not mean that uh, somebody uh, is covering something up or is distorting something. It's just that you're, nobody's sitting down and trying to write in terms of a, of a modern uh, academic model of histori- historiography an exhaustive detailed account of everything that happened on the road to Damascus. But when you create a false criteria like that and then impose that upon these uh, these different narratives, it uh, makes it appear as though there are discrepancies when, in fact, there are none. We're looking at maps just to orient us. Uh, down in the su- southern part here, right at the southern tip, is Jerusalem. Here's Damascus, which is the uh, capital of modern Syria and was the capital of the sort of the Cilicia Syria area. All of this was part of a one Ro- Roman province at the time. Up here you have the city of Antioch, which becomes significant later on in, uh, in Acts. And then this is Tarsus, which is the hometown of the Apostle Paul. I pointed out last time that the Apostle Paul's background was such that he's born into a a family that is associated with the Pharisees, a wealthy family indicated by the fact that they had Roman citizenship, that his father was an entrepreneur businessman, had a tent manufacturing business that 
the young Saul would have apprenticed to. We know of this because later in life as an adult, at times he went back to that, established that kind of a business in places like Corinth, employing believers in order to make money. Capitalism, not the kind of pseudo-capitalism that is often attacked today by uh, different elements of the uh, of our modern media and press, which is really a con- a very uh, federally con- government controlled t- type of capitalism, which is not free market at all. But they had a <clears throat> a opportunity to go start a business and to build a business and to generate income that supported them, and this is completely in line with the uh, with the teaching of Scripture. Paul gives his little bit of his autobiography, a couple of different passages, such as uh, Acts 3, 5, and 6, which we looked at last time, talking about giving his credentials as a strong, passionate, 180% dedicated uh, Pharisee, dedicated to the law, dedicated to uh, rabbinical teaching, first century rabbinical teaching, on how a person gained uh, approval with God and that this is based on the observance of both the ritual and the moral law of Moses. He's from the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning he's the poster child. If you want to know what a true dedicated Jew would look like in the first century, the picture in the encyclopedia would be the Apostle Paul. No one surpassed him. He is a Pharisee, he says, concerning zeal, his passion. He is in self-righteous arrogance to the extreme, persecuting the church. And concerning the righteousness, he said, which is in the law, that is generated from observance according to Pharisaical standards, he would account himself blameless. In Acts 22, he talks about his his, uh, background, uh, and as he's giving his testimony to a Jewish audience when he went to Jerusalem and a mob comes out and, and he wants to address them and he says, speaking to them, well, let's turn there. I want to hit both this passage and the one in Acts 26 and look at that in comparison with then in comparison with what we read in Acts chapter 9. So in Acts 22, Paul says, you remember he's addressing them. He addresses them in Hebrew. I think this is important. This is just kind of a side note. But what you will discover every now and then, I know some of you get out and you, you're, you're, you're enthusiastic about reading and studying and learning other things about the Scripture, which I applaud. And one of the things that has come up in the last uh, 20 years or so, 30 years in terms of scholarship, is the hypothesis that Jesus taught only in Aramaic. And so the Greek of the Gospels is really a translation from the Aramaic. There are some problems with that. And one of the problems that I have, and I'm not, I haven't investigated this fully, is that, that the language that they used to address was Aramaic, whereas here he says he addresses them in the, in the Hebrew language. And so that is part of what, it, what is going on. I think that, that it's important to recognize that he's addressing them still in Hebrew. And they, 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 they understood that. He's speaking to them in their language, not in Greek. I don't think Jesus taught the New Testament in Greek. I don't think he necessarily taught it in Aramaic um, or, or Hebrew. Whatever language he did, and he may have shifted languages because he was multilingual, the reality is, is that God the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of Scripture to write it in Greek so that the Greek is what accurately reflects what Jesus' intent was. So we can't get mired. In, you know, there are some conservatives who say, well, we need to go back and back translate it into Aramaic to get the real sense of what was going on. And um, that's not necessary if we truly believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. So... <clears throat> Paul talks to them in Hebrew. That calms him down. He's not a foreigner. He's not talking to them in Latin or, or, or Greek. And they gave their attention to him. And he says <clears throat> here, and I just have verses 3 through 5 up on the screen. says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. And I said a few things about Gamaliel the last time, that Gamaliel was considered to be uh, <clears throat> the foremost rabbi especially among the Pharisees at his time. He is honored as one of the greatest of all of the rabbis 
in the ancient world. It was said later that he was uh, the head of a rabbinical school that had been founded by uh, another famous rabbi, Hillel, in uh, about 10, 10, 10 B.C. Now, there were two great rabbis about that same time, Shammai and Hillel. Uh, Hillel, I believe, was a more conservative, the more of a more of a, we would call a literalist, biblicist, and Shammai was a little more uh, loose with the text. And so there was always this debate uh, going on between uh, the rabbis over the interpretation of different aspects of the Old Testament, and it comes out of whether they were from one school or another. This is like dispensationalist versus covenant theology, dispensationalists being the ones closest to truth and covenant theologians, of course, being furthest from the truth, you understand. So that's the idea. So Gamaliel is in that tradition, but Gamaliel really established his own, his own school uh, and becomes, uh, even, I think, as great as uh, uh, his predecessor, uh, Hillel. And <clears throat> he is, uh, because later on, uh, he is the, the followers of Gamaliel are spoken of not as those who are members of the school of Hillel, but those who are the school of, of Gamaliel. And Paul was in that tradition. And I've heard Arnold Fruchtenbaum refer to some passages in the in the uh, Talmud that are some. There's some debate over their textual veracity and some other things, but where. Uh, it appears that a name has been removed. That was one of the uh, foremost rabbi in the early part of the, of the first century, and there's some speculation that might have been uh, Saul to begin with, but we have no way of, of knowing, and so I wouldn't uh, hang my hat on that too much. But it's interesting information uh, to be aware of. So he says that he... He was in the study at the feet of Gamaliel. He is the prized student. He is the uh, number one apple polisher in Gamaliel's class. He is uh, far and beyond the greatest rabbinical student of, of that generation. No one could touch him. He's absolutely brilliant. Anyone who studies Paul, whether you're a believer or not, and I have read conservative uh, Jewish scholars looking at the New Testament and in terms of its Jewish background come to the same conclusion that uh, whether you agree or disagree with the Apostle Paul, his writings are among the most erudite, the most logically rigorous of all writings uh, in, the, in the ancient world. We, you, they cannot be simply dismissed or diminished lightly. So he says that he studied under the school of Galileo, taught according to the strictness of our fathers. So we see that he has a rigorous view of the interpretation of the text and the law, and he's zealous or passionate toward God. I pointed out last time, that is really evidence that he is, at his core, positive toward God. But like many people who may be positive at an early age, they can, because we all have a sin nature, they can go off the rails and get trapped in suppression of truth and unrighteousness so that for all practical purposes, our observance of them is that they're the last person in the world who would ever, ever become a passionate disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's wrong on our part because up until five minutes before Jesus appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, any one of us would have possibly written him off. This guy is so hostile. This, he is Adolf Hitler personified in his hatred and antagonism towards, towards Christians. And yet, in an instant, he does a 180 because when Jesus Christ appeared to him in the light, he saw the truth for what it was and re responded positively. So no matter how hostile, in fact, if you know somebody that's really hostile to the gospel, that may just be their defensive mechanism to try to cover up something that makes them very uncomfortable, which is the fact that they might be just a little bit positive and that makes them uncomfortable. So you never know. It's in the Lord's hands. And he admits in verse 4, I persecuted uh, this way to the death, the way was a term that was used to refer to Christians in the early church. It was taken over by a small 
uh, cult group in the U.S. back in the 60s and 70s. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. So he makes it very clear that he is out there rounding up families who are Christians and putting them in prison, and he's involved in their torture, and he's involved in their illegal execution, which is murder. He said, goes on to say, as the high priest bears me witness, so there's, uh, it's well known. He says, in all the council of the elders, it's the Sanhedrin, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So when he says bringing in chains, he's not talking about some metaphor there that this is emotional bondage or spiritual bondage or he's just going to bring bring them back uh, maybe at the point of a spear. He's talking literally. They would be linked one to another by chains and manacles and marched back to Jerusalem. He wanted to make their life as much of a living hell as possible. In verse 6, he describes what happens. He says, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a light from heaven shone around me. So he's probably somewhere between 8 to 14, 15 miles south of Damascus. Suddenly a a great light from heaven shone around me. Now this is typical in many revelatory uh, theophanies in in the scripture when God appears, there, he is surrounded in light. John says in 1 John uh, chapter 1 that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is himself light. It is not just a metaphor for his purity or his holiness, but it, in, it, it, and it, it involves that as well, but he, he is light. When we see God appear again and again in the Scripture, it is that effulgence of his of his being that is often referred to as his as his glory, so that it becomes reduced in a, a finite way to the uh, pillar of fire that led the Israelites out of Egypt. It is uh, symbolized or seen in uh, the event in the Old Testament when Moses would go into the holy of holies, and there God would. Uh, appear to him over the Ark of the Covenant, and when Moses came out, his face was was glow, was glow. talk about the rosy glow. Um, he just his face just be- literally, not just figuratively, he literally just beamed. And over a period of days, it was so intense that it would, but it would decrease in its intensity. People would see that, and when it first happened, apparently it's typical of of most of us. You're really impressed. Wow, he, must, he saw God. Look how impressive that is. But then as, and he talks about this in Second Corinthians, then as, as Moses, uh, the time went by, and that, that brilliant reflection of God's glory from his face diminished, then people would sort of lose their mountaintop religious experience. And, well, you're not so close to God today as you were yesterday, so maybe we won't pay attention to you. And so in order to counteract that, Paul would put a veil over his face so people would not let their spiritual lives be distracted by his physical appearance. But it is it, it shows again that, that again and again, Isaiah, when he's before God, the throne of God in heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, numerous other places, there's this appearance of God in, in this brilliant light. But the light is also significant because it's revelatory. It exposes that which is in the darkness, and it is, is it illuminates truth so that we talk about walking in the light of God's word or in the light of God's truth. The psalmist says that it is in thy light, that is in your revelation, that we see light, uppercase to lowercase. It's in the only within the framework of God's word that we can understand uh, truth in our day-to-day experience. So Jesus, the <clears throat> incarnate, uh, the um, uh, resurrected, ascended uh, Christ, appeared personally to the apostle uh, on the road to Damascus in a, this great light that shone around him. And verse 7, he says, I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice he doesn't say anything about the goats kicking. That's added in chapter um, chapter 26. 
and it's added in a textual variant in the King James, but shouldn't be there in Acts chapter 9. But all he says is at this point is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The light is almost physically palpable. What happens when Paul sees that light is so overwhelming that it knocks him to the ground. And I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience in life, but there are times when people are hit with tragic news that it just knocks them on the ground. And so this is that kind of event. It is, uh, it's so profound in his thinking that it, it just knocks his feet out from under him. And then he hears the voice. <clears throat> and he answers, he says, Who are you, Lord? Now, some people have made a lot of, of uh, theological uh, <clears throat> headway out of that word Lord. But the word Adonai, I mean, and kurios is used in Greek, is also just a simple expression of a recognition of someone who is worthy of respect, much as we would use the term sir, uh, much as uh, when you go to Mexico, or you don't have to go to Mexico, you just have to go over here to uh, Hammerley or Long Point or, and drive down, uh, drive through Spring Branch, as I do almost daily, I see a bumper sticker that says, uh, Jesus es mi señor. Jesus is my Lord, señor, which we normally associate with mister, you know, señor Garcia, uh, señor Smith, whoever. Uh, this is a title of respect. We would translate it mister, but it is also the polite word for sir or Lord. Uh, that's how they translate Lord in, in, in the Bible. So when we read that uh, Paul say, says, uh, uh, Lord, why are you persecuting me? We can't make the mistake that John MacArthur makes, and many other, and I use him as an example because he is in print in numerous places with this argument, that, that this means that at this point, Paul, by the use of the term Lord, is submitting himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is when he is saved, because that, that, that is pushing too much weight on, on the use of this word curios. It is simply should be understood within the uh, context. I'm not even sure that Paul has the nuance here when he says curios of recognizing that Jesus is God. He is, he is just simply recognizing uh, the superiority of the one who is in his presence and uh, demonstrating his, what would be standard, uh, standard language, just as... Uh, you get stopped by a police officer, you're going to say, yes, sir, what may I do for you, sir? Would you like to see my driver's license, sir? Because you don't want to end up in any worse trouble. So uh, he says, who are you, Lord? And, uh, I mean, if he knew who Jesus was, why would he say, who are you? If he's saying, who are you, Lord of the universe, Savior of my life, to whom I'm submitting everything, why would he say, who are you? That That's ridiculous. That's That's contradictory. That's irrational. So he, he's asking the question for identification purposes, and Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Notice how he indica- Jesus identifies himself in terms of his humanity and in terms of the one who walked on the earth for 33 years, teaching consistently that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, prophetic passages related to the Messiah. He doesn't say, I'm Jesus the Messiah. He doesn't say, I'm Jesus Christ, which means the Messiah. He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He's, con- he's connecting the dots right away. I am the human who was crucified because he claimed to be the Son of God. Paul got the message uh, that he is, that this is the divine one. He identifies himself as Jesus of Nazareth. And then Paul says, and those who are with me indeed saw the light and we're afraid. Now, what's interesting is in all three of these accounts, you'll notice that Paul says that those with him saw the light. Now, what you get from from your liberals is that they say, "Well, this was just this was internal. Paul had a hallucination. He saw a vision. It's all uh, inside his head, between his ears." But the the statement in all of these passages is that that while the, those in attendance with him didn't hear the specific words that Jesus said, they heard someone speaking. 
but the words were inarticulate to them. They saw a light, but they couldn't see clearly who was being revealed in the light because it wasn't for them. But the fact that they saw the light and heard a sound tells us that this is an objective event that was not a psychological uh, apparition with, uh, between Paul's ears. Those with me indeed saw the light and were afraid. They're not just looking at, at Paul down on the ground as if he had a stroke or a seizure and saying, oh, well, wait a minute, let's call 911. I wonder what we do. No, they're afraid because they understand that something supernatural has happened. And one of the words that is used in Acts 9 for what they see is a word that is used frequently in passages where people see an appearance of God, a, a theophany. So he says, those who were with me saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, other passages say they heard. So what's the contradiction? Well, one is... Um, that they heard the sound of the voice, but they didn't hear the specific words that were were said, much as if you may be in one room and you hear somebody talking in another room. You know there's somebody there and you hear a human being talking, but you don't hear their words clearly enough to have any idea what they are saying or, uh, or even identifying who the speaker is. So they heard the sound of a voice, but they didn't hear specifically the content of what was being said. So Paul says, I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, arise, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all things which you are appointed to do. Now, by this point, uh, he's been identified as the one who's persecuting Jesus. Jesus has identified himself, and so the text doesn't tell us. And at this point, Paul believed in Jesus. But what we see is what Paul says is the result of the fact that he has believed in Jesus. He's had his moment of faith alone in Christ alone, and as a result of that, he says, okay, Lord, I'm convinced. What do I do now? And he's directed to go into Damascus, and there he will be given further revelation. Verse 11, he says, and since I could not see for the glory of that light, he he was blinded by it. Uh, he's led by the hand of those who are with me to into Damascus. That is Acts 22. Now let's turn over a couple of a couple of pages and look at the account in Acts chapter 26. This is a another event. But the, the other one, he's standing before the crowds in Jerusalem, and and they just want to stone him. They are riled up. They're emotional. They're they're almost like those crowds that we've been seeing getting riled up in Tahrir Square or outside the U.S. Embassy in Cairo or in Benghazi or some other place there. They they don't want to listen to this sort of an objective explanation of the gospel. And so they, they react accordingly. Now, when we get into Acts 26, this is an event that is the result of that earlier event because... They, the crowds tried to stone him, and he appealed uh, to, to Rome to protect him, I mean, to the Roman Empire to protect him. So he is escorted by a military contingent to Caesarea by the sea, which at this time is serving as the uh, headquarters uh, for the Roman government in Judea. And there he goes, and the, uh, I believe it's the procurator at this time, is, uh, is Felix, and when he appears before Felix, Felix is somewhat sympathetic to him, but Paul uh, plays his trump card in, the, in chapter 25 and calls for an appeal to, Jeru- to, to Rome so that he can come under complete Roman law uh, in, his, in his trial. So he's kept in uh, jail. It was probably a pretty comfortable situation there, beautiful location. Uh, when we get there, I'll show you pictures uh, in Caesarea by the Sea, which is one of the most beautiful, uh, beautiful sites, archaeological sites in, um, uh, in Israel. And in chapter 29, Herod Agrippa II and his <coughs> wife, uh, Berenica, come, and they uh, are interested in hearing from uh, Paul. They've heard about him. They've heard about all of the uh, disruption and disturbance, so they want to hear him state his case before them. So in uh, verse 1 of chapter 26, we read, 
Then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered the word there was apologia. He gave a rational, apologetic defense of his belief. That's all apologetics is, is giving a rational, well-articulated explanation for what you believe and why you believe it. He says, I think, think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions that have to do with the Jews. Now, he is not pandering to Agrippa at this point. Agrippa is a grandson, I believe, of Herod the Great, and he does know Jewish custom and Jewish law. And he was uh, considered a one of the better uh, Herodian rulers. And so he is making an honest statement, and he is appealing to his knowledge about uh, Jewish law and custom, and he will appeal to him. He says in verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Now, that's an interesting statement because he could be speaking in a general sense, which would indicate, as some have suggested, that he didn't go to Jerusalem until he was bar mitzvahed, which is a view that I've generally taken. But this might indicate that what he is saying is that from uh, young childhood, he was sent. We know he had a uh, he had family in Jerusalem, and that he was sent to Jerusalem in order to uh, study from an early early age. And um, <clears throat> it's not precise enough what that means. A man of my life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning. From the beginning of what? From the beginning of his life? Well, he's not sent there when he's two or three years old would have been later, uh, probably from the beginning means from the beginning of his adulthood, which was marked by his, his bar mitzvah when he was 13. So, uh, spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So he was a highly observant Pharisee. Josephus says there were only about 5,500 in the Pharisaical party, but Josephus also says that there were, I think it's right around 4,500 Essenes. Josephus is the only one who mentions the Essenes. It seems like there were many more people who were associated with the Pharisees, but maybe there was, you know, these are the card-carrying Pharisees, and everybody else just um, identified themselves when they uh, were called up by uh, Gallup polling, and they said, yeah, I'm, I, I'm a Pharisee. They didn't, weren't a card-carrying Pharisee, but that's who they tended to sympathize with. So he goes on to say, Now I stand, I'm a judge for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Notice what he does here. He's talking to a Jew. He doesn't go back. Now we're, I'm going to make this point as we go through again and again, as we go through uh, these various passages where Paul is witnessing to unbelievers. When he talks to Gentiles, he goes back to creation. When he talks to Jews, he goes back to Abraham. Why? Because the Jews don't have a problem with understanding uh, monotheism of the Old Testament and the historicity and accuracy of Genesis 1 through, through 11. So he can start with Abraham. And that's what he starts with. He locates this in the Abrahamic promise that was made to God uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, verse 7, to the promise of our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day. I hope to attain for this hope's sake. What's the hope? The hope is that God's going to give them the land and they're going to experience the fullness and blessing and prosperity that God intended to give the Jewish people, but they haven't experienced yet because they haven't been obedient. They haven't accepted uh, the gospel. When they were obedient in the Old Testament, they experienced a measure of that. But that's the hope of the promise, and it's the Abrahamic promise. And and so and that includes, from what Paul said to the to the Jews earlier, that includes the hope of resurrection, which the Sadducees rejected. So the resurrection to the future kingdom, and that's what he means when he says, "For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, that is the hope of future resurrection, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead?" See, he nails it. He goes right to the to the core issue here 
that Old Testament promise focuses on a resurrection. I was teaching about the resurrection. That's the hope of our calling. Why does this upset people when you talk about God, the fact that God can raise people from the dead? It's all through the Hebrew Scriptures. He said, indeed, I myself, I, I got caught up in that trap. I thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. Again, we see he is imprisoning men and women, believers, Christians, in uh, in his persecution. Having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, so they're not only put in prison, they are executed for being Christians. And Paul is complicit in that. It's not just dealing with Stephen and his stoning, but there were, we don't know how many, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah that are imprisoned and many who were uh, executed for their faith. He goes on, verse 10, This also I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. That would be these uh, Jewish believers. Having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue. So we see that Christians are still meeting in synagogues at this point with uh, Jews that didn't believe in Jesus as a Messiah. Christianity at this point is still considered part of Judaism, but it is splitting. And those who had accepted Jesus as Messiah and those who hadn't were still meeting together in the synagogue. And so he's going in to weed them out and to identify them and compelling them to blaspheme, to deny Jesus. And he says, being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So he's chasing them. He is, he is just on crusader arrogance to the max. Uh, and he says, verse 12, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and uh, commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me. See, that's some new information there, but it's not contradictory, just expansive. Shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, now there's some new information, doesn't contradict other accounts, but he, what we, we see here is Paul has a more time to d- talk about what happened. And so he adds that not only did he see the light and it knocked him down, but it knocked everybody else down. Now that's important. Why is that important? Because again, it shows that according to the only historical accounts that we have, it is an objective event. It's something that wasn't between Paul's ears. Now this is why the authority of Luke and the authority of the writers of scripture is constantly attacked because if you can do away with the only documentary uh, evidence that we have and and destroy that, then it's all just guesswork. And so that's why it's important. And and you'll get this. I've, I've got this. I, I think I've used, told this story before. I have a friend, Jewish friend, and we have discussions uh, every now and then. I let him always initiate uh, because I think that's when he feels comfortable and in control. And he'll start asking questions. And as soon as the the, 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 the gate opens, it's not one, it's like 20. And I'll just say, stop! Let's just deal with one, the first one. You can no longer say with any, any seriousness that the New Testament was written 300 years after Jesus lived. I said, there's no evidence of that. In fact, liberals who don't believe the Bible is on the New Testament is what it claims to be, even there are many liberals that, that believe it was written in the first century. And there are copies, there are quotations from almost all of the New Testament books in the early church fathers within 50 years of the death of the last apostle. This was all written in the first century. You can't say that. He finally, okay, okay, I won't say that. I said, okay, we'll deal with the next one next time. So I moved the ball down the field maybe one foot or six inches at a time. But sometimes that's all you can do. You just settle for limited objectives, but make sure you you move the ball down the field and don't get you know, sacked in the backfield and lose 20 yards because you're not prepared. So Paul, Paul is giving this, this information. It's clear it's objective. He heard a voice speaking to me and saying, in the Hebrew language, new information, Jesus spoke Hebrew to Paul. 
I think Hebrew is going to be the language in heaven, so maybe we ought to start learning now. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then this line is added. Here it's accurate. Paul adds it here. Notice he's added all through here additional information. He says it's hard to kick against the goads. A goad is a long stick that was pointed at one end that was used to prod uh, oxen so that they would move and uh, other domestic animals so they just wouldn't stop and stand still and eat, but they would, if they were carrying something, moving down the road, carrying a load, plowing, whatever, they would move. move. And so the idea is that every time Paul heard the gospel, he's being goaded, he's being pricked, he, God's pushing him in some direction and sticking him with the truth of the gospel and Paul is resisting it and has been resisting it and resisting it and resisting it. And so the Lord says, how are you going to kick against the goads? You're, being, you're under conviction all the time. You're hearing the truth all the time. And you know it. Don't give me this stuff that, oh, I don't know. You know it. it in your soul, you know this, and you're just trying to cover it up. But you know the truth, and you're just suppressing it in unrighteousness. Verse 15, so... Uh, Paul says, I said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice he doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth here, but that would be the full statement. I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. And then we have additional information given. Jesus said to him, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And see, at this point, Christ gives him his commission as an apostle. He said, to make you a minister and a witness. Notice in the introduction to, to Acts, I said, this is a key word in Acts. The church is to be a witness to what? To J Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the other most part of the world. So Paul fits in that pattern. To make a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Now, Jewish isn't in the original text, but the uh, implication is clearly there from the language. And he says, to open their eyes, that is, the Gentile eyes, in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, that's an important verse. We'll get there uh, in due time. But notice that he is given this commission to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's his, com that's his com commission. Then uh, he goes on in verse 20 to talk about what happened afterwards. That gets us that far. So what Paul says, and I'm going to wrap up here, in Galatians 1, when he is talking to the Galatians later on, after his first missionary journey, he identifies the source of the gospel. He says, I neither received it from man. He didn't get the gospel. He, didn't, he was not converted from a testimony from a human being. That's what he's saying there. He's not saying he didn't get additional information from the apostles, but that his core understanding of the gospel that convinced him of the truth of the gospel did not come from a human witness. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, that is, from man, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who revealed it to him on the road to Damascus. Then he talks in verses... Uh, 13 and 14, about how he persecuted the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it, how he had advanced in Judaism beyond all of his contemporaries. And then he goes on, and the next couple of verses talks about the fact in verse 16 that God called him to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. So he goes into Damascus, but he doesn't go to Jerusalem for three years but he goes out into Arabia for a, a little um, uh, thought and contemplation and revision of his theology and understanding of the Old Testament. So we'll come back to this passage. This is another important passage. And then we'll move on as we go through. And then now when we go back to Acts 9, we're going to read it with a little more clarity and understanding because we see that it's not just another little event that happens in history, but it's a, one of the probably uh, top 30 crucial events that happen in the whole scripture. And it's referred to numerous other times later in the New Testament. So how can you understand Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, you know, uh, Timothy? How can we understand these subsequent epistles if we don't understand Acts 9? We can't. 
Later revelation is always built on earlier revelation. That's why you need to be reading your Bible every day. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word tonight, to be uh, reminded of its inherent coherence, unity, the fact that it is not contradictory, and that it grounds your revela- the revelation of yourself, the revelation of Scripture, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of salvation in history. History, truth, and your word cannot be, cannot be divided, cannot be stripped apart from each other. We can't just say these are good ideas and go with ideas, for these ideas are grounded in historical real-time circumstances. And, Father, that gives us great confidence that this is truth, and this is not just something manufactured, some counterfeit, some religious attempt to distract us from the truth that you have revealed. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to study more, dig deeper, and to be more focused on glorifying you through spiritual growth. In Christ's name, amen.